The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. The stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. It may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 71 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 24th of February, 2021, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. In this episode of Squawk Ident, the crew and I discuss the chaos and adventure we each have witnessed over the past few weeks. From winter is coming in Texas to rampant flight schedules in the West and DIY Tony adventures, or dare I say, the clown show. Today, we discuss the challenges with winter operations, a possible game changer with de-icing procedures for the future, the importance of pre-flight inspections, engine failures, and the longest journey from gate to the hotel van, circling approaches, and much more, all on this the 71st episode of the Squawk Ident Podcast. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate, start up those virtual podcast engines, and get ready for takeoff. Squawk Ident episode 71 is officially underway. Joining us today is a superb aviator and co-host. He is a former international and professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP, an avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, a commercial drone operator, and currently a 737 pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. From his fortress of isolation, where he and his family have spent the past week snow tubing on the mean streets of Dallas. And now he's thawing out with 70 degree days from somewhere in Flower Mound, Texas. Help me in welcoming back to the show, Mr. Rob D. Rob, how the hell are you? I'm doing much better, Tony, thank you. It's good to be back. I know it's been a couple days since we've uh, done our last podcast. Yeah, a couple days, the 19 uh, to be exact, you know. Right. Um, it's been crazy on my end, too. We'll get into that uh, in a moment. But uh, you've yeah. been actually out there in the thick of it. And, you know, you and I have been yeah. texting back and forth with your progress and yeah. trying to figure out schedules for this recording. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I got to say, I'm impressed. What what uh, has it been like for you? Well, um I'm very happy to say and very blessed to say that uh, our experience during the uh, what we've dubbed the snowpocalypse um, here in Texas has been relatively not too bad. I mean, probably the worst case scenario that happened in our house was we lost <laughs> the Internet. <laughs> so the kids were going bonkers, you know, and we are um, we're all streamed, you know, with our TVs and everything. So yeah. Yeah, we didn't have anything. 
Um, so, you know, boohoo us, but, uh, you know, in all seriousness, you know, people were in really, really bad, uh, situations where, you know, there was no electricity, no heat. Um, and, uh, you know, pipes were freezing and bursting and flooding the houses. So there's pictures of, of, uh, leaks from coming from ceilings and there it's a big icicle yeah. and that goes to tell you how cold it was inside of these people's homes, um, because there was no electricity or heat. So the pipes burst, water would leak, and it turned into a big dripping icicle inside the house. So it's a very serious situation. And uh, so I'm just happy to say that, you know, we really got by really well and we've been very lucky. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I was listening to a lot of the news about this because, you know, I was concerned, not just because, you know, it's Texas and, um, yeah. and I know a lot of people that live there, but I was concerned for you as well. I, I kept checking with you. Do you still Thanks. have your power, you know, and, yeah, yeah, and, uh, you did. but it's funny because you start hearing these things and, and I was born very much in the cold tundra of the North, uh, and, you know, migrated towards California sure. as a child with my family. And, but I spent many, a, many a day, a week, month, uh, you know, in, the mountains, snowboarding and Tahoe and, and staying in cabins and camping. So I, I kind of sure. have this knowledge base that I was very fortunate, as, as you said as well, very blessed to have that knowledge base where mm -hmm. when you're in a cold climate, there are things you can do to mitigate the damage. Yeah. Uh, you can leave faucets yeah. dripping in the bathrooms because running water yeah. will not freeze like uh, stagnant water or water in a pipe because yeah. water it, obviously as we know it expands uh, and that's how you get right. these bursted pipes in the walls which are thousands if mm -hmm. not tens of thousands of dollars to repair other yeah. things like uh, food spoiling you know i kept watching these news feeds coming in and there's people going oh i lost my entire refrigerator full of food and i'm thinking why didn't yeah. you just put everything out on the patio or balcony or something yeah. it's freaking zero degrees outside come on you know yeah. um yeah. but if you don't know unfortunately the damage can be yeah. relatively expensive and yeah. catastrophic and and, and the, the gas range that was my favorite if you have a gas range yeah. in your house in a stove and yeah. you go to turn it on and you don't hear the click 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 because you don't have electricity the igniter is not working yep. you can use a match <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Do you not have yeah. a lighter somewhere? Just yeah. turn the oven on. You get some heat from the yeah. oven, you know? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. You and I are at advantage in that in that sense. You know, we're, we kind of understand mechanically how things work, but there's a lot of people out there that don't have that. And, you know, that's that's where it becomes dangerous for them because, you know, what they don't know is going to hurt them. Right. And a lot of in watching the national media, a lot of people don't realize uh, this area, um, we get cold temperatures every winter. But it doesn't last long. It doesn't last a week. It lasts maybe a day or two. You know, we'll dip into the twenties, uh, and then you know during the daytime it'll come up above thirty, and and that's cold for us. Uh, this particular occasion was drastic. I mean, we went it, it the high got up to like eight degrees for multiple days in a row, and um, you know after all the snow and the rain, the high was like eight degrees. So. The other thing is logistically, Dallas in the area, Texas in general, in the you know at least in the central lower parts of the state, um, they don't have snow removal equipment because we don't need it. We don't get snow, you know, like we did 
and it doesn't usually hang around that long. You can't get snow shovels in the stores. You know, they they rarely sell a good winter glove. You know, they usually sell like a, a cloth glove you put on your hand. Yeah. So um, there's logistically speaking, the stores don't have equipment and stuff for, you know, occasions like this. So it, it, it got really serious. And the homes aren't built for this kind of stuff. You know, you go up to the north and the northeast, you know, homes are built you know, specifically for the change in the seasons and the cold and stuff like right. that. And in here in Texas, you know, we, we'll be above 100 degrees on a regular basis uh, for weeks at a time. So our homes are built a little differently to withstand that. So, you know, when it dips down to eight degrees for a long time, I mean, oh, yeah. things start freezing and things start bursting. And man, yeah. anyway, we're, we're, we're through it. And, um, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of people that are still recovering and, you know, hopefully they can get the help and insurance is going to take care of them, hopefully <laughs> the right way. Yeah. So if you're a contractor yeah. and you're looking for work, uh, just go ahead and uh, pack up the RV and head on over to Dallas, Texas. Was, I'm sure there'll be gonna plenty say, of work for you. <laughs> if you're a plumber, you have plenty of work here in Texas for sure. Plumber, pool guys. Oh, man, it's floor. <laughs> if you do drywall because <laughs> uh, all those homes get flooded you know you have to rip the flooring rip up the plywood and rip up the uh drywall well roger and i know a little thing about that you know and speaking of roger also here to help uh us get flight 71 of the squawk ident podcast underway is another exceptional aviator and co-host he is an award-winning trophy hosting tennis champion a professional CFI, double I, MEI flight instructor, a former freight dog, a former airline pilot, a current King Air flight instructor, a Falcon 2000 commander, a captain, and a corporate operator as well. He joins us from his oasis of chaos, where he is sharing his one day off from an enormous amount of flying this week with us. From somewhere in San Diego, California, please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Captain, how the heck you doing? Uh, first of all, I'm going to need to uh, just go with a hard pass on the drywall work. <laughs> I, I no longer, I no longer have any time in my schedule. I don't know what happened, but um, I, I've been swamped. Oh my gosh! I mean, you were doing like what five like, like your day off was yesterday, and you told me you did five legs or something like that. Yeah, it, yeah on my day off, I did five legs. It was it was exciting. <sighs> it it's just Jeez. kind of. It, you know, like every other operation, things happen, and and so these flights need to get covered, and and I'm I'm kind of the one that's it, it's easiest for me to cover. I, I guess is the easiest way to put it. Well, so, you throw a rock, and you pretty much hit the airport of your base operation. I think so, that that's yeah, you know? that's pretty much part of it for sure. Yeah, and and I gotta say uh, again. Uh, I went down to San Diego to help help Roger out a little bit with some home remodeling and home improvements. Um, really had a good time, Roger. Thank you again for uh, hosting oh, me to come down. Um, and we, you know, we did some finishing work, and I was impressed. You know, we were doing some uh, vinyl flooring, LVT flooring, or installing that on the entire first floor of his his place, and uh, we didn't quite get done on the on the last time. So then when I went down there a few weeks ago, I thought, well, we'll finish up the flooring and put in the baseboard. And he goes, well, actually, uh, I, uh, I finished it myself. 
And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, man, you built my confidence. You taught me well, let's do it. And I did it. And I went down there and I got to tell you every little corner, every little seam, I was very impressed. And I was like, wait a minute, how did you cut this? I didn't have my table saw here. He's like, well, it's, you know, jigsaw and and the skill saw and jigsaw and circular saw. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it did great work, Roger. Great work. Um, so yeah, we we knocked it out. We finished up everything. There's still I have still left Roger with some uh, finishing, painting, and and you know. Yeah, mostly the the finishing work. Yeah, the, the finer points. And how did you get anything done at all? I no. <laughs> I no. I haven't done anything. Except work. Work, work, work. <laughs> yeah, gotcha. yeah. I've, I've seen the Caribbean. I saw I saw Texas in the middle of that debacle. I've yeah. been to the mountains. I've been, you know, pr- practically stripped searched by customs. Oh. Uh, I've I've gotten myself IFR current for another six months shooting approaches and circling and, <laughs> and intercepting and tracking. And it's been it's it's been a bit of a whirlwind. And that, you wow. know. I, I do want to dive into your uh, your strip search by customs uh, story. I'm sure that one's interesting because that's random. Uh, but before we do that, you know, I got to say, I was impressed with how much your phone rings on your day off. <laughs> and there is no such thing as a day off. I, you know, I, I'm spoiled. You know, and and Rob is spoiled too because our days yeah. off. You know, unless you're on reserve and you're low on the totem pole in terms of seniority at a as a professional pilot at a at an airline or something like that, you know, your phone might ring, uh, but you know that you're on duty. You know that hey, I'm I'm on duty for something. And as your day off, you don't have any obligation to answer the phone whatsoever. But in your career field as a private operator, your phone rings like every hour. Oh, did you get the fuel? Did you do the customs report? Uh, are you going to take care of the catering? You know, where's the aircraft? Is the aircraft going to be out of maintenance? What about the third aircraft? Is the third aircraft compatible with the second aircraft's uh, current flight schedule? And are we? Get- oh my God, you're you're like <laughs> nonstop, twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five. And I looked at you, and <laughs> what did I tell you? <laughs> I could never do your job. <laughs> I believe were your exact words. <laughs> I mean, how do you get stuff done? And here we are, you know, we're th- swinging a hammer and, and we're, you know, oh, doing some manly work around the house and, and having a good time together. Well, you, you know, that was, you caught me. You happened to come down because I really wanted to get some of that stuff done. But truth be told, after the fact, it was terrible timing for me. You know, you, uh. you, you might remember that, that, that Tracy was also gone. Right. And so I was a, a full-time dad with my two kids in their school and doing everything for them. And I'm trying to get this work done on two days off in the middle of about four, I think four different trips and having to deal with being in the middle of one trip, but then having to do three other trips that were in the middle of a big international trip. And so, it, but I wanted to get this work done. And so you happen to come down to to, to do this in my mind was going in about 10 different directions, which is what you probably witnessed. Fortunately, that is not the norm. However, that it does happen and you just got to do it. But it was, uh, it was a trying, it was a trying, it's been a trying past what, 10 days, 10 to 14 days of which I think you came down in right in the middle of it. Yeah. 
Well, welcome to my world and my mind, my friend. <laughs> That's me <laughs> on a daily basis trying to juggle all this. As a matter of fact, you know, I, I finally put my foot down for myself and said, That's it. I'm going to take a day off. Um, I've only flown one flight from our last show, and it was actually get out. days. Just get out. Day, not one flight, but one sequence. And it was only days after our last show because I had a week off in there from scheduling. And then I had a week of vacation, which I'm currently in the middle of. So in the last 20 days, I flew two days and it was 19 days ago that that I did that. So I was able, I was like, I told Julie, finally, okay, that's it. We're going to get all the major projects done with this house that we've been talking about doing. And this whole pandemic kind of, you know, wrapped up into a, oh, well, I'm not going to do it because of, you know, Right now, let's kind of keep an eye on the money and the COVID and all that stuff. Finally, we're like, let's just knock it out. So backyard, re-landscape, the sprinkler systems in. I went and hooked up a trailer and bought a bunch of sod and laid down sod in the backyard. Got the garden on an automatic sprinklers, had to install those. Uh, then Julie comes up and says, oh, I found a trampoline for free. Let's go pick it up. So there was one day we drove down <laughs> Southern, like deep Southern California down in Moreno Valley, Orange County area, um, picked up a trampoline. So I had to take that apart, bring it home, clean it up, put it all back together. And I thought, well, I don't want to put the trampoline on this brand new grass. So I cut out a 10 by 10 section of the garden, lowered it and laid down rock. So I had to go and have the rock delivered and, and with a wheelbarrow spread that out. Meanwhile, while I was kind of finishing that on that two or three day project, we had to finish the last bathroom. So as Roger is well aware of, of the chaos that is happening when you do that. Uh, yeah, we demoed the bathroom, had to redo a lot of electrical work. I was up in the attic a couple days, and then we decided we're going to put in a skylight. So we bought one of those sun tubes. It's like a 10-inch oh sun tube. <laughs> so, of course, before you're cutting holes in your ceiling, in your, in your attic area, in your roof, uh, you really got to make sure that you got everything you know, squared away, every I is dotted and T crossed. So that took a couple of days to install that, but that's done. Uh, and then, you know, new tub and surround, which meant new plumbing. And we elected to go with the three valves, one hot, one cold, and a diverter in the middle instead of the more modern single valve, because on the single valve, you can't really control water flow. So it's either on and you control the temperature or it's off. And we like to have the idea of just having like, different control. So we did all that. And here I am, I put in the tub, it looked great. I start putting in the surround and I realized because of the design of the surround, that three valve plumbing that I did soldering in copper pipes and everything wasn't going to work. Oh, no. <laughs> so yesterday, last minute, I was like, okay, that's it back. We got to go back to the single valve. And so I had to now cut more pipe, shut the water off to the house and solder in this, you know, new uh, faucet for the shower and tub surround. I, I got to tell you, I'm getting pretty good at plumbing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I've been yeah, swinging the hammer like Bob freaking Villa over here. And uh, yeah, and I enjoy doing the work because it's a great sense of accomplishment at the end of it when I go, yeah, sure. I did that. You know, I remodeled yeah. that. But I, I'm impressed. I got the drywall done yesterday, but now I got to go buy more joint compound and, you know, mud that up and, and get all the joints covered and texture the walls and put in the tile. Once I get that done, I can put in the vanity and the, 
medicine yeah. cabinet and the toilet and all that. But so yeah, another two or three days worth of work and I should be Dang, done. Dude. And I'm trying to get at least four days of vacation where I'm not doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're crazy. Oh, I'm sorry, man. man. Yeah. But that's a lot of those. Well, the crazy thing me right now, I'm just thinking to you is like most guys would be, you know, just, all right, I'm just going to tackle one of those things at a time. It sounds like you did them all kind of same time at the same time. You know, I have a hard time just going to do the laundry all at once. <laughs> you know? well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah. uh, Setting the bar really high, Tony. Well, you really know, high I, for, for dads and, and fathers. <laughs> I, you know, hindsight, and it's not my first remodel. I've, it's probably my third. Yeah. Actually, it's my third remodel um, for a home. And I've got to say, I owe it all to my father. My, my father and I have, you know, had this relationship where we don't always see eye to eye. <laughs> and and as, a, as a young child, it was tough. I wanted to go play and ride bikes and hang out with my friends. And he's like, nope, yeah, this weekend we're chopping down that eucalyptus tree and you, you got to help me. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Uh, well, this weekend we're re-roofing the house and you got to help me. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, as a kid, you don't want to hear that. As a kid, you yeah. just want to be left alone and... And to go out and do, you know, you'll do your chores and stuff, but you just want to be a kid. And that just wasn't happening at my house. But now here I am in my 40s and I've got to say I owe it all to him. Uh, he yeah, he cool. taught me everything I knew and about plumbing and things like that. And it, it has become an extremely valuable thing to yeah. know. 40 years later here you go you're yeah, saving you probably uh, you're doing your own thing saving money thousand dollars on this stuff well yeah, yeah if you add it all up i mean home depot loves me they i have my account there and they're like hey tony how you doing <laughs> welcome back <laughs> like i was there twice yesterday i was like oh god i hate i hate you know having to go back but because of the whole faucet thing but anyway uh that's what i've been up to in the past uh, so i guess home days. depot isn't very uh convenient for you like it is to me <laughs> Cause I can just be there and be in there in like two minutes. And that's the, that's the, that's the bad thing about home Depot for yeah. me is that it's really accessible. So I'm there all the time buying parts and, uh, well, you, you're close and Roger's yeah. close. Like you guys are both like within a mile or two of home Depot. Yeah. I have five home depots, five within eight miles. So yeah. I check on my phone. Uh, Roger actually taught me how to do this. I check on my Home Depot app to see if they have the product in stock before I leave the house because one yeah. may have yeah. sitting in the other. So, oh my God, it's like, it, it's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> it's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's cool. <laughs> but let's talk well, about um, aviation, shall we? Uh, you know, uh, thank you guys for indulging me in, in, uh, in hearing what I've been up to. This is an aviation podcast, isn't it? Oh yeah, okay, go is ahead. It? Sorry. Yeah, let's talk about that. So- <laughs> You know, we've all been very busy and, you know, you guys have been uh, both fortunate to, to be out there flying. I really do miss uh, being out on the flight line uh, this past couple of weeks, uh, probably because I just needed a break <laughs> from, the, uh, from the hard labor. Uh, but you've been dealing with this weather and these schedules. Um, Rob, let's yep. start with you. When winter operations is always a challenge. And for most yeah. aviators, unless they are flying and getting their training done in the Northeast or the Northwest, where they're 
immersed in low visibility, winter weather operations, most people get their flying training, at least in the U.S., in places where they have close to 365 days of sunshine a year, like Arizona and Florida and Texas, where for the most part, it's good weather. So the first time they have to actually go through de-icing, the first time they have to deal with anti-icing systems is yeah. usually at one of their first airline carriers or their regional carrier where they get their first job if, it's, if that's the, the path that they take. And it can be yeah. a little intimidating. What did you see over this last few weeks that might help someone who is just getting into the industry and having to deal with winter ops? Well, first thing I would say is, first of all, take take it very seriously. You know, it's it's uh, um, icing on an airplane is no joke. It it really ruins the performance of of the airplane, whether it's the lift, the uh, the speed, the acceleration, whatever weight. Um, so, um, we we take uh you know, the de-icing program very seriously here at our company at Legacy. Um, we have the policy of what? Clean aircraft, clean wing, clean aircraft. So if there's just a touch of frost on the wing, I mean, even if it's the size of like your hand or, or a finger, it has frost, it's not clean. So we have to have the aircraft de-iced. So you would think that it's a waste of money and it probably is. You're probably throwing a lot of money over the wing with de-icing. Uh, removing the stuff, but um, it's part of the insurance that the airplane's going to fly the way it's supposed to to have that that stuff removed. Um, as far as our experience for this past uh, snowpocalypse here in Dallas, um, it was uh, you know they do a really good job at the airlines, um, you know setting up a facility or a location for de-icing to to happen. Um, in this particular case in Dallas, they they take one of the uh, pads by the runway, which is just a big open area with multiple areas for airplanes to pull in, and they turn it into a de-icing pad, and they have multiple trucks there. Um, so you can de-ice more, I think, probably five or six airplanes at once. I forget. I, did, I never really count. But um, it's almost like a, a drive through car wash. So the airplane pulls in. You, you communicate with the uh, the ice truck. We like We like to call him. Um, in, in honor of the uh, famous Top Gun movie, we call him Iceman. <laughs> so we called it the de-icing the, the truck Iceman. And um, we tell them, uh, we communicate with them, and we let them know what our configuration of our aircraft is in. And um, they go ahead and uh, take care of our aircraft by removing the snow, frost, ice, whatever it may be on the airplane. And then they follow it up with uh, with a type 4 chemical for uh, anti-ice if it's snowing, if we have uh, active precipitation. Um, in icing conditions, they'll follow it up with, uh, uh, as we know, it's called a type four, um, anti-ice. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and, uh, so anyway, I, I think, I don't know if that's what you wanted to do with that, but, um, that's kind of what been the experience and we, we do a pretty good job here in Dallas. Um, believe it or not, you know, I mean, after everything that happened here, uh, made the news, the airport actually does a really good job with the um, icing conditions and, and de-icing procedures here and as, as well as they do across the system. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, and thank you for that. That's exactly what, you know, the, the general information of the process that it yeah. takes to clean an aircraft. Now, 
as we know, frost, especially on the control surfaces of the aircraft and the upper surface of the wing and uh, you know, the, the vertical stabilizer, horizontal stabilizers, all those have to be clean because any disruption to the laminar flow would generate a loss in lift. Uh, you will then not have the performance that you need to take off. Because I know there are many pilots, especially old school pilots. I've flown with a few that have been flying for 40 years. Um, and not lately, but uh, in my days back at Sandpiper, I've flown with a few that really had a hard time making the call to de-ice. I mean, the, the SOP, or the Standard Operating Procedures, or the POH, as we call it at Legacy, the Pilot Operating Handbook, is very clear. That's your, that's your aviation Bible. It basically replaces the FAR-AIM book that every flight instructor or student pilot should have in their library. And it states when and you should and should not consider de-icing. When in doubt, spray it off, clean it up. Um, yep. But we've had pilots that I've flown with that they're like, oh, back in my day, we used to like de-ice with a broom and this is nothing. It's all going to just flow. It's too cold to stick. It's just going to flow off the wing. And though they're coming from an old school mentality that is probably not far off from accurate, um, like you said, insurance yeah. uh, that the aircraft will have its performance, the insurance on the aircraft and the company as well is like, all right, we're going to allow you to insure your operation with the understanding that you're going to follow these procedures. And when you don't, yeah. that creates an issue. And at the yeah. end of the day, we've said this on the podcast many times, it's all about protecting your certificate. Now, Roger, mm -hmm. your time at ExpressJet, have you ever had an incident where a de-icing situation became difficult? I don't know if it necessarily became difficult unless you were at O'Hare. If you were at O'Hare, if you had to de-ice, it was difficult. Exactly. Hey, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's the de-icing is a is it's a painful process in a lot of places. Canada is great. I, I will say yeah. that. Oh my God! Yes. Canada, they got their de-icing processes down, um, kind of like um, what Rob was just talking about in terms of a car wash. You drive in. They they hose you off, and it's just like a conveyor belt of airplanes because they do it all the time. It's much of a much more of a difficult issue when when it's a place that doesn't deal with it so much, and then it's kind of just a a little bit of a mess, and it can take a while. Uh, my, you know, the way that we deal with it now is a little bit different than the way that that you guys do. The outlook that that we have to take is it's just a little bit of a different mindset, um, but. You know, de-icing, like you said, is is really important when the situation warrants it. We spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to to not be in the situation, so that we need to do it for a multitude of reasons at the at the corporate level. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, and you mentioned Chicago, which thank you very much. That's exactly what uh, we were talking yeah. about because Roger and I were actually based what in Chicago mess. at the same time for different companies, it, and unfortunately, it didn't last very long. And yeah. but um, yeah. Rob mentioned Dallas. Now, Dallas is great because they have very large, what a GA pilot would call run-up area at the threshold of all of their runways, the, the pad, as they call it in Dallas. So once you transition into the pad, you are literally a couple hundred feet away from the whole short line. And so to get de-ice 
and then call because you go to the de-ice frequency. You call Iceman on this particular frequency. Iceman, this is you know, uh, Legacy Airlines uh, two two three, and we're requesting uh, Type one and four. And there was a time when pilots or captains had the discretion to say wings and tail only or full aircraft, uh, because again, for the factors and the reasons that we've mentioned previous, that that is no longer in our company op specs. You, it's actually not allowed. It's a full aircraft every time. Um, so now it would be, you know, type one and four wings and tail is not an option. So it would be type one and four, and they know that's the whole aircraft type mm -hmm. one, just for those that may not be regular flyers is how you melt the snow off the aircraft, the existing per, uh, freezing precipitation that may be adhering to the aircraft, how you melt it off. Right. Normally, it's like a hot, really, really hot water. You see these de-icing trucks, they've got these giant boilers, yeah. and it's like a hot water solution mixed with something else that helps. I think glycol maybe. Like or glycol mix, like yeah. 50-50 yeah. um, yeah. usually, 50% 50, 50 yeah. water, 50% glycol mix for a yeah. type one. Now that, in some operations will give you like 10, 15, 20 minutes of what they call holdover time, meaning the time that the de-icing process began to the time you can take off and the aircraft can still be guaranteed to be clean, meaning no nothing adhering to it, uh, then you can go. Now, our company's kind of pushed away from that. Now they're saying, oh, no, no holdover time for type one. Just if you, if you, if it's actively snowing or misting or whatever, you have to get type four. Um, yeah. So type four is the second stage in the process. So once the truck or trucks go around your aircraft, spray it all down, clean it all off. Now they put a, usually a 100%, they use all different types of de-icing fluid, kill frost, ABC plus, all these different types. Yeah. DuPont, Ucar and all that. Yeah, yeah. This is like the green stuff. Okay. Yeah. And they, it's a very kind of a gelatinous, sticky, it's kind of like slime. If, if you, the Nickelodeon generation can remember slime, you know, and it's pretty much like that, a little bit thinner. And they coat all the control surfaces with this slime, this type four. And that has a, yep. a basically like an alcohol glycol uh, formula in there that any snow that falls onto it will immediately melt and not adhere to the aircraft. So that type four is really anti-icing, and that's what we need to have in the event that we're in active precipitation or freezing precipitation, and we have to take off. Now, once you start trucking down the runway over 100 knots, getting ready to lift off, that stuff is all just going to kind of slide from the leading edge to the wing, slide off down the flaps all the way down, and leave the wing. So once you're in the air, it's gone. So the purpose of type four it has nothing to do with in flight. It's from the beginning of the process to the time you take off, are you protected? And once you're in the air, then we have the aircraft's internal anti-icing system, which are heated leading edges and heated engine nacelles and cowlings and things like that. So that's the, the really basic general idea of what de-icing is. The complexities can get you can get into the finite detail, just like performance, where, all right, which, what's the formula? What is the visibility? Yeah. What is the freezing precipitation? Is it hail? Is it, is it frost? Is right. it fog? What is it? And so all these factors right. now yeah. determine 
the differences in your holdover time or the time you have to take off. And that's what Rob was mentioning a couple uh, episodes ago is we have a really cool app that we have on our EFB, our electronic flight bag. So on our tablet, we just turn on the app, put in the tail number. It knows exactly what airport you're at. You just verify all the information and you hit a, a button on the app and a timer starts and you already told it what kind of type four you're putting in there. And it'll, it'll have like a little green indicator that turns amber when right. you're getting close to your yeah. time and then it turns red and an alarm yeah. goes off. Like Tony said, yeah, that, that timer, the, the, the timer, the timer is predicated on, um, the actual conditions at the airport. Uh, is it snow? Is it freezing rain and the temperature and the intensity? So the holdover times vary according to those parameters. And, um, so in this app, it knows exactly according to the latest weather report, what those conditions are. So when you hit start, like Tony said, it knows exactly the the time um, that that whole that that fluid will will be uh, active, or should we say, <laughs> within FAA, um, you know, mandated time requirements before it runs out of its holdover time before you have to get, have it reapplied if you haven't taken off again, exactly. which is really cool because before we used to have to reference a, an actual paper chart. And you'd have to, the captain would have to make a decision looking out the window. Well, it says here on, on paper that it's, you know, only a quarter mile in, in heavy snow, but I could see a little further than that. So we'll call it light snow. And uh, yeah, holdover times could be 30 minutes instead of the 15 minutes. So we, we can go to 30 minutes. Right, <laughs> right. And so there was a lot of variety of decision-making, uh, obviously. Yeah. Now, Roger mentioned Chicago O'Hare. Chicago O'Hare. They have developed a de-icing pad that is yeah, nowhere near yeah. <laughs> the usually the active runway. <laughs> so, okay, no. why do they do this? Because O'Hare obviously doesn't have much real estate, uh, taxiways and, and ramp areas. So they're very crowded. Most of the time we were doing our de-icing at the gate. And they would have two or three de-icing trucks per terminal or per section. And you would have to call and you don't get de-iced until you're completely boarded up. The doors are shut. They pull the jet bridge away. All the ramp uh, equipment is out of the way. And then the de-icing trucks would come in and spray you down at the gate. And then you'd have your holdover time. And then you would call ramp for clearance for pushback, depending on how busy the ramp is. If there's a tractor in the ramp area, removing snow, active snow, because Chicago does get you know, a lot of snowfall. Uh, occasionally. And so your holdover time, that clock is just ticking and ticking and ticking. And then you have to get pushed off the gate and then contact metering, which is you don't go straight to ground in Chicago. You go to metering and metering tells you, okay, you know, and they make sure you have the proper squat code. They know where you are. And then they tell you, okay, uh, monitor ground control. So then you switch over and monitor ground control and they know you're number one, number two, or whatever you are in the alley. And it's Chicago. So they'll talk to you. You probably won't talk to them <laughs> because they just don't have time for that. And by the time you get to the runway, you're, you could potentially be so close to your holdover time or exceed it that you now, oh, I got to go back to the gate and de-ice de again because this took too long. And I've, I've had that happen to me a few times. It is a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Um, so some airports deal with it much better 
than others. The reason I wanted to talk a little bit about this is because I read an article just this morning that was pretty cool. Um, and it's an article by ScienceTechDaily.com, which indicates that potentially in the future, we might change the way aircraft de-ice completely. This one uh, was uh, posted uh, February 24th by Mechanical Engineering and Virginia Tech, and it's entitled Jumping Frost Crystals. Electrostatic de-icing effect could be a game changer for aircraft and HVAC industries. If you have ever gotten up on a winter morning and thrown yourself into the arduous task of scraping frost from a windshield, a Virginia Tech lab is engaging science that could make your life much easier. In research funded by the National Science Foundation, Associate Professor Jonathan Bricchio, or Borkeo, uh, has led a team in developing a potential solution for frost removal by way of electrostatics. As water freezes, positively charged protons and negatively charged electrons separate. Frozen ice crystals become electrified as the top of the frost becomes warmer than the bottom of the frost. This causes charged ions to move from the top to the bottom or warm to cold. But it turns out that the positive ions can migrate faster. The top of the frost ends up being negatively charged while the bottom is positively charged, a concept known as charge separation. Charge separation is in frost and has been studied in the past, but the effects have never been exploited to remove the frost from its surface. Borco's nature-inspired fluids and in interface labs set out to fill that gap. The team started by artificially creating frost on a surface. They then suspended a film of water above the frost using filter paper. Opposites attract, so negatively charged top of the frost sheet attracted to the positive ions in the water. This generated an electric field that exerted an active force on the frost sheets. Using a high-speed camera, the team observed frost particles breaking off their substrate and jumping towards the opposing film of water. Frost was grown on both metal and glass surfaces, indicating that the jump frost effect is possible regardless of the thermal and electrical properties of the object holding the water. With this data in hand, the team is moving to larger scales in their testing. The ice particles in the experiment were very small in size, each only a few millimeters or less. Broico's team is working towards removing large sheets of ice by increasing the amount of charge that comes near the frost by replacing warm water with actively charged electrodes. The small frost jumps could become large-scale ice evacuations. This is pretty cool. Um, that is pretty cool. Sounds like a Tesla <laughs> technology kind of thing coming to you know, de-icing process. Ab absolutely. Um, yeah. If this becomes a technology that is viable and not too expensive, obviously, uh, this could be the way of the future for not just aircraft, but for HVAC systems uh, and, and yeah. more. Um, these findings were published by ACS Nano. The article's lead author was Ranit Mukherjee. 
a graduate student at Boricchio's lab. So I'll put a link in the show notes, a really interesting article uh, that I just happened to stumble across when I was doing some research for this show about the de-icing and, and all that stuff. So can you imagine? Yeah, just uh, push that uh, de-ice button right there on the, on the glare shield and boom. <laughs> That'll be cool. That'd be cool. Yeah. That that's pretty cool technology. I I I don't know what to say other than that would be a revolution in the way things are done for sure. Yeah. And and I look forward to kind of keeping an eye on this for the future because uh Yeah. Pretty yeah, cool. Just imagine like the broad scope of what that can do, you know, the problems it could solve if uh you know if we can get that technology going. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. Cool. Total sci-fi here. So as we know, uh, flight schedules are severely impacted whenever we have severe weather, not just winter operations, but summer operations, thunderstorms alike. Um, all of it can be very detrimental to flight schedules. <laughs> so what I wanted to talk about is like what the complexity of why some flights cancel and others don't. Um, I know I've sat in the terminal many times speaking with customers, uh, not really understanding. It's like, well, my cousin lives where we're going and, and, and he said the weather's fine. I, I don't understand why we're delayed. You know? And so you got to sit there and go, well, ma'am, you know, the aircraft isn't here. The aircraft was probably somewhere where the weather was and, or maybe, yeah. you know, they needed that airplane for somewhere else. You know, I'm not going to sit here and yeah. pretend to, to understand and explain to you the intricate details. Of- I was going to say, let's. It suffice to say, it, it's a multifaceted, That's multi-dimensional, logistical challenge. Even on a good day, yeah. um, you know, it, it's it's tough because I mean, you just look at our pilot group. You know, we have what fourteen, fifteen thousand pilots. How many flight attendants? Eighty thousand or something like I that. Know. I don't even know, yeah. but. Some were really high, up upwards higher than forty or fifty thousand flight attendants. Um, so they all have their own individual schedules, which are predicated around Legacy Airlines uh, route network. Um, so then, um, you know, we operate a hub and spoke system, right? So every flight ping pongs in and out of a hub, basically. And so we bring people from the smaller towns to the hubs and then from the big, from the hubs, spread them out wherever they're going, whether it's Europe, Japan, Australia, Chicago, Miami. Um, And then we have contracted carriers um, like Sandpiper who go from the smaller towns and they bring them into the hubs and they're they're doing the same thing. Um, Then you have airplanes which have their own schedules because they need to be inspected at certain times. They have to be at certain bases where they have maintenance to do those inspections. And um, so bring all of that together, right? You have a schedule (laughs) and it's finely tuned. Now you bring in something like mother nature and they start, you know, uh, slowing things down and delaying because like, for instance, here in, in Dallas this last couple of weeks, I could barely make it to my mailbox outside of my house <laughs> without slipping, falling, and, and, and killing myself, let alone move around these big pieces of metal 
on the tarmac, or even let's even break it down even lower than that, getting the bags from the bag terminal from where you drop your bags off out to the airplane in the tugs because it, the tugs don't operate very well <laughs> in icy and snowy conditions. The ramps are just covered. So basically what I'm trying to say is the operation grinds naturally to a, to almost a, 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 a slow crawl or even a halt because you can't do things as fast and as efficiently as possible. So now you can't get flights in, you can't get flights out. So now these flights start to get delayed. Now, us crew members are protected by regulations for duty days, rest, right? You, I, we can go on and on and all that stuff. So as we're putting all this together, we have a certain time from when we start that day till we, we call turning into a pump and where we can't no longer work because we're federally restricted from continuing. Right. So as our schedules get canceled and delayed, we get pushed closer and closer and closer to that window and we end up getting canceled. Now, this is where the bigger problem comes in, right? Because now you have crews that get stranded in throughout the system in outstations and, and overnights and it could be all over the world and they have to go into what they call a crew rest. Well, we don't have just people sitting around in you know the small town of uh of uh, uh I don't know, give me a small town. <laughs> Kansas City, uh, yeah, sure. some, you know, Manhattan, you know, Wichita, Kansas. Kansas out there, <laughs> Manhattan, Kansas, that works for Legacy Airlines and says, okay, I'm available. I can go fly because I live here. Work. It doesn't work that way. So the, they, the company has to, and they use technology, obviously, to, uh, to figure all this stuff out. Yeah. They use technology to figure out what is the best worst case scenario <laughs> for canceling flights. Uh, what the, what their whole mindset is, is try to position the crews and the airplanes and the people, the passengers in the best situation for the recovery. So when the weather does come back, we have planes and crew members that are legal and they're ready to go to get the operation going again. Without that kind of planning, you will have situations where planes are, there, there are planes where there's no crew members or there's you know crew members at the hubs where the planes aren't. So that doesn't do anybody any good either. So unfortunately you get people stranded and uh, you know, customers get stranded at, at, an, at an outstation or in here in Dallas, which is unfortunate, but um, uh, you know, did I do a good job explaining some of that? But it's, that's great. It's very, very, very complicated. Yeah, yeah. The strategic planning and all of it uh, is something that it's it's fluid. Uh, any yes, of our leader too. leadership would tell you it's very fluid and it and it's changing rapidly and constantly. And there's so many moving parts that it's it's almost impossible. Um, and you you raised the point that um, kind of raised a little bit of a red flag for me. The traditional ground equipment has always been gas-powered equipment, belt loaders, tugs, you know, bag carts, all that kind of stuff. And with technology, what we've now started to get towards is battery-operated equipment. Battery-operated yeah. equipment doesn't do so well in cold temperatures. In Anyone cold that's lived in yeah. a cold climate knows that batteries have a tendency to be very much affected by cold yeah. temperatures. So that too is an added factor in the yeah. slowing down of the process. 
Um, yeah. Although and, battery technology has come quite a long way in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, yeah. um, it's still affected by temperature. Cold is, you know, obviously for, for in the big scheme of things, when electronics run, they want to keep them cool. You never want them to overheat, but there's for batteries, it's, you got to keep them at a, there's a happy temperature between not going to work so good and it's overheating. <laughs> so you got to keep it cool. Yeah. Very true. So these operations with airlines um, are very complicated. Occasionally, they affect general aviation as well. Roger, you, you sent me a text message that raised an eyebrow when you said, what is up with your company? Yeah, Legacy Airlines, man. Uh, and we talked about it on the last show, uh, deadheading, uh, having to get pilots from point A to point B without an airplane. Uh, per se, that they're operating. And you got caught up in the, a little bit in this weather as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Uh, sure. I, I will uh, now be representing the, the airline customers uh, for this portion <laughs> of the programming. That's funny. <laughs> uh, so so I, I had to reposition myself because I had an airplane that was actually out in the Caribbean and I had been doing other, you know, I'd flown it out a couple of weeks ago and it, it was there for about a week. And then I had to get back in order to fly the flight back. And as part of that kind of, you know, deadheadings normally referred to as crew members moving. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm just a GA pilot. I'm you know, not an actual crew member. So I'm an airline customer. In this particular instance, and obviously having worked at the airlines and having kind of an, a little bit of an insider knowledge and everything that, that Rob was just talking about, I do understand to a sizable degree. It's a massive operation and there are no right answers. However, in, in this particular case, it is extremely frustrating from a customer standpoint, because what happened to me is I was starting, actually started in Reno and had a connecting flight through Dallas. And unfortunately, my connecting flight through Dallas was at the same time as the snowpocalypse or, you know, the polar vortex or whatever it is that, that you want to call it, um, which was terrible um, on multiple fronts. However, I, I was at the gate in Reno at, at 530 in the morning and I was flying with oh. with one of our our con our contractor pilots and. And I told him, and I was like, if, if they're going to cancel the flight out of, out of Dallas or out of DFW, I'd, I'd, I want them to do it now. Because the problem from, from kind of the, the middling range where I, I understand how badly that that weather is going to affect stuff, it's like, I don't want to end up in Dallas. Mm. Well, sure enough, to make, to, to make a long story short, we flew to Dallas and then the flight canceled approximately well it, it canceled after our original departure time and i'm not really like from a customer standpoint or even from an airline standpoint it it's frustrating to be flown into a hub and, it, and it, this was not an airline thing i mean sometimes thunderstorms they they affect the aviation community much more than really you know anything else but in this particular case you get to dfw and this was a, I mean, this was a, almost a statewide infrastructure collapse because it's, it's because the state, the cities, you know, they're, they're not prepared for it. Right. But then we're flying into DFW where there are no people, the, the employees for restaurants, janitors, 
um, airline personnel cannot get into work, and yet you're flying in plane loads of people on these flights that don't cancel in order to literally then strand them in an airport with no hotel rooms because they're all booked up, with no flights that are operating because every other one of them is canceling, and it's a ripple effect. Like in my case, I got extremely lucky through a an extremely friendly gate agent who was even kind enough to talk to us and not send us to the customer service line. It was 300 people <laughs> deep and one person working the desk. Yeah. And actually in the end, we bypassed the standby list somehow and got confirmed seats through the goodness and graciousness of, of this gate agent. Oh, that's cool. But you now have thousands of people stranded in an airport with nothing, with hardly, with not much food because everyone's running out, nobody to help, no one to, to fix the food. And it is very frustrating to not, you know, to be flying people into a problem. You know, we want to try and keep people away from the problems. And yet sometimes airlines have a tendency, and this isn't specific to any one, one airline either. We have a yeah. tendency to fly people into a problem and create a problem where there was not one before for the customers. Right. And that's yeah. an unfortunate thing. And especially in my case, cause I had to get out to, to operate this flight and I was confirmed on a flight the next day. And then, then those flights are canceling. Yeah. So yeah. You're only operating half of your flights and you know, the capacity of an Airbus 321 is what 180 to 200 people. Yeah. Like one, yeah. yeah. 170 to one. Okay. And yeah. so you've got 175 people every single time that are now stuck in DFW with no infrastructure. And that's, that was definitely the frustrating part yeah. um, for me having, having seen that rating to not, you know, to be flying people into a problem. You know, we want to try and keep people away from the problems. And yet sometimes airlines have a tendency and this isn't specific to anyone's one airline either we have a yeah. tendency to fly people into a problem and create a problem where there was not one before for the customers right and that's yeah. an unfortunate thing and especially in my case because i had to get out to, to operate this flight and i was confirmed on a flight the next day and then, then those flights are canceling yeah. So yeah you're only operating half of your flights and you know the capacity of an airbus 321 is what 180 to 200 people yeah, like one, yeah, yeah, 170 to one. Okay. And yeah. so you've got 175 people every single time that are now stuck in DFW with no infrastructure. And that's, that was definitely the frustrating part yeah. um, for me, having, having seen that and experiencing it. And fortunately, I got way, extremely lucky there's no other yeah way you did it. and you know, i mean it was a miracle kudos to, to that gate agent if it wasn't for that gate agent you know yeah. so my hat's off to them absolutely and i taking, i'm very taking care of the cops although, I like that. The, although the, the way that that came about was actually pretty funny as well uh, if you if you wanted to hear that we kind <laughs> of might have uh offended him by telling him, get us out of DFW because we're going to fly to Florida and we're going to drive and take Southwest. <laughs> and it was, that was the switch. And all of a sudden, oh, no, 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 my friend. You do not want to fly Southwest. <laughs> Give me your driver's license. That's, that was actually the change. Hmm. Hmm. Is when we actually were going to 
fly another airline. Yeah. Like, just get me somewhere where I'm not stuck here. And because I had to get out to, I mean, I had to get somewhere to then operate a flight. Yeah. And all of a sudden, when we were threatening to fly another airline is when this gate agent decided <laughs> <laughs> maybe we were worthy. Wow. That's well, funny. You know, the fact that you got out of there and you weren't stuck in the snow apocalypse for a few days, um, I'm very grateful that uh, that you got to get out of that potentially disastrous situation for you and, and the operation that you work for as well. So let's move forward on some things that have happened in the past week with aircraft engines and engine failures. Now, what we're talking about is what's been littered all over the news, all over the media about this United 777 that had an uncontained engine failure over Denver. Uh, the NTSB came out with a report this morning, and let's just dive into that a little bit. Oh, here's an article from aerotime.aero uh, from the 23rd of February from Clement Chapertreau. Uh I apologize if I'm butchering that, but a United 777 incident may be related to metalware, the NTSB says. On February 20th, 2021, a United Airlines Boeing 777-200 operating as flight 328 from Denver to Honolulu suffered an engine failure shattering engine parts over several neighborhoods around Denver. Upon preliminary examination, the NTSB found that two fan blades were fractured in the right-hand Pratt & Whitley PW4077 engine. One fan blade was fractured near the root, while the adjacent fan blade was fractured about mid-span. Regarding the fan blade that was fractured at the root, a preliminary on-scene exam indicates damage consistent with metal fatigue, the NTSB chairman Robert Sumwalt said. For the fan blade that was fractured mid-span, the damage is consistent with being struck when the outer fan blade banged into it. Parts of the wing-to-body fairing were damaged by the debris, but no structural damage was found. So far, the NTSB is unable to determine if the incident on February 20th, 2021 is similar to the one that involved another United Boeing 777 on February 13th of 2018. Back then, the NTSB concluded that the fracture of the hollow core PW4000 fan blades was due to the absence of a thermal acoustic imaging process defined by Pratt & Whitley, resulting in the lack of training for inspectors. Somewalt concluded that the incident of Flight 328 was not classified as an uncontrolled engine failure since the containment ring worked properly and the cabin did not suffer any structural damage. So containment ring, jet engines, fan blades, mm -hmm. metal fatigue, um, the way all jet engines operate is they have the fan blade in front, or at least the more modern jet engines have a high bypass fan blade in front. Those are the ones you see from the ground as the one you see behind me. And if you're watching the video, uh, now these it's fan a very, blades, the very basic way to explain it is yeah. suck, squeeze, bang, blow. Yeah. The fan blade, the N1 fan blade, which is the forward. That's right. Most forward blade is the big one that's the one that gets the like about 80 percent of the thrust see. the ones you see yep but then there are compressor blades that that get tighter and tighter smaller and smaller and compress that air to a, a very high psi yep. 
Okay, that's the yep. squeeze, right? So sucks in, yep. squeezes that air. There are igniters in there, and there are burn chambers or fuel canisters that right. have so fuels introduced. The fuel yep. and air mixture, the compression Combust- that yeah, compresses the it into the combustion chamber, and then yep. from there it expands. The heat expands rapidly. rapidly to the point where it needs to go somewhere where there's compression in the front. So it's not going to go that way, right? So it's going to go out the back. And that's yep. the blow. So it blows out of the back of the engine, creating more thrust. But Right. Well, it, it also turns the N2 spool, right. which is connected to the fan blade in the front. Yes. So (laughs) I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible, but really suck, squeeze, bang, blow. The reason you can't just jumpstart a jet engine is because it needs to be turning to create compression in order for the combustion to work properly and go out the back to turn this, the axle that goes the drive shaft down the middle to turn that front fan, which is the N1, which generates the most of the forward momentum. Right, the most of, most of the the thrust. Thrust. So yep. those fan blades are on tremendous amount of pressure. They're made out of very high tech materials, metals, composite materials combined with metals, and they need to be inspected regularly. What happens over time is there are metal fatigue situations that could happen. Who knows? There could have been a bird strike at a time when the engine had a lot of hours on it that created a hairline crack or micro crack or uh, some fatigue to that metal that went unnoticed through an inspection, went unnoticed somehow, or got to the point where it just said, that's it, I'm done. I'm leaving this aircraft because of the, the, the turning momentum. Yeah. It's going to be shot out of the engine, right? There is this composite material, this carbon fiber, usually shroud that goes around that section of the engine cowling that is supposed to prevent any fan blades that have been ejected from leaving out the side that could potentially go into the cabin of the aircraft or leave the engine you know, in the air and then fall to the ground. That failed on this 777. It and the damage was so catastrophic that the engine nacelle, the cowling around it, and the leading edge all came off and ended up in the neighborhood below in flight. Yep, yep, in flight. So, this is a big deal. The reason, and we're not here to speculate what happened or what the crew did, I think they did a phenomenal job. I got to hear some of the audio from Live ATC, they remained calm. They did a great job. They got the airplane on the ground. There was, I even heard the, the clapping that uh, the passengers in the cabin were, uh, were doing at the landing. You know, they're, they're just happy to be alive, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, yeah. But I think they did a phenomenal job. We're not Absolutely. here to quarterback in any way, shape, or form. But we wanted to talk about pre-flights. Now, do you even think that something like metal fatigue can even be seen by the naked eye? Very, very rare. I, I come from a, I was a crew chief in the Air Force for 12 years, done hundreds and hundreds of thousands of inspections on airplanes and engines. And 
is very hard to see with the naked eye. What you can see is damage. You can see what we call FOD damage. FOD is an acronym for foreign object damage. Um, so in, in other words, like a, a stone is on the ramp and it gets sucked up in the intake and that fan blade spinning at you know a couple thousand RPMs hits that stone, it's going to put a little nick in the fan blade. Um, and so you can see that damage, um, that that's damage that you need to report obviously. And we're, that's the stuff you're normally looking for. Um, metal fatigue is very tough to see, especially on an engine because you only see maybe one to 2% of that total engine in the form of a fan blade. That's all you see. And you're only seeing the front half of it. So to see anything else is it, it you just can't see it from your, from the, from the, walk around. Um, and from my experience in the military, um, the we used to have metal specialists come out and they would actually x-ray the airplane to look for fatigue cracks because there were known areas in the F-16s and the F-111s where they there, there's a lot of stress put on the air, on the airframe, and those areas were known to develop fatigue cracks, which are not visible to the naked eye. So they take a basically what's equivalent to like a sonogram <laughs> that you would use to find babies on a pregnant mother. Um, we would use a very similar technology on the airplane's metal and they would run this uh, sensor over the metal. And at the same time, they're looking at a, at a monitor that would give them a, a, a kind of like a, it looked like a wavelength, uh, so to speak. So from what I remember, um, normally on a, on a, on a normal piece of metal with no fatigue, that that frequency wavelength would be very steady and it'd be just you know like almost like a line and as soon as you ran over a crack it would change the frequency of that of of that sonogram and it would indicate that there's something there ah. and when i when i saw them do that and saw the line blinking i'm like oh wow look so it doesn't you can't even see that there's a crack there and he's like yep there's one right here you know and and so that's how they they found it. But you know that took very sophisticated equipment uh, to to find that kind of stuff. And that's something they do at major overhauls and you know rebuild processes or or you know whenever the, the need arises. Um, but if I could, real quick, Tony um, and Roger, th you know this this um, engine event you know has happened in the past. Fatigue or and you also mentioned fatigue, but also. Um, it could also develop in the manufacturing process, as we learned in the 1989 United Airlines. And, you know, coincidence, the same airline, but, you know, it's not the same thing. But United Airlines Flight 232, which uh, crashed in Sioux City, Iowa. And, uh, you know, the very famous captain, Al Haynes. Yes. And, and uh, the first officer was... Um, uh, let's see, Bill Records and the Czech Airman or the SIM instructor, uh, Dudley, uh, or uh, he's a flight engineer, Dudley Dvorak, were flying the airplane where they had that, um, the, the third engine, the, the one on the tail of the DC-10, um, had the similar thing where the, the blade separated from the engine and it pierced all three hydraulic lines of the DC-10. Now, in this case, they had three engines. Um, and the reason why they had a problem was the uh, three hydraulic lines all intersected at one common point in the airplane, which was the only place that they intersected. And it just happened to be in line with the, where this fan blade 
cut through. So it was basically a one in a million chance that it happened, that, that, that it would happen. So basically they lost all their hydraulic pressure, which controls all the, uh, powers, all the hydraulic, uh, I'm sorry, powers, all the hydraulic flight controls. And basically they had no flight controls and they had to land this airplane using engine, um, thrust and airspeed. So there's an example of, you know, fatigue or, um, something happening in the actual production part, part of the engine that went unnoticed. You just can't see it. You know, it's just something that, you know, hopefully they get it right when they make it. And, uh, you hope, like you said, we'll, we'll it be interesting to see what really uh, happened to this one because, uh, yeah, that's a, it's a big news. Yeah. And, you know, thank God that nobody was injured both in the aircraft and on the ground. Right. I mean, can you imagine you're in your front yard thing? Engine intake. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That intake is, is, a. It's huge. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's probably, they're what, 12, 15 feet round. Yeah. That, that yeah. intake is huge. Um, you can, you can stand in the engine to sell. I mean, it, that, yeah. that's a big engine. Um, and to have that thing land in your yard. I do know it's the circumference of a seven, three, seven fuselage. That's the circumference of a, of a triple seven oh, really? engine. <laughs> so that's how, that's how big it is. Yeah. It's, it's, they compared it. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. And, and the three guys that are standing in their yard and it says uh, gate agent, uh, FAA and or gate agent, captain and first officer. And they're looking at the engine to sell in the yard. And, and then it says the gate agent going, is this airplane still going out on time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love oh, that's it. funny. I, love it. I, I can imagine crew tracking going, hey, guys, uh, I'm glad you're, you're on the ground safely. Um, if you want to just go ahead to gate 11, we'll have another airplane waiting for you. <laughs> I've had that happen to me, actually, in L.A. Right. years ago. Yeah, I know. Me too. So like, we just declared an emergency, did an emergency landing. It's like, yeah, we got another airplane for you. No worries. Uh, just, you know, they're already boarded up. We got a new flight attendant crew. Uh, just, just, just show up to the gate yeah, when you're no. ready. What? <laughs> But anyway, but not every diversion is due to (laughs) an engine issue that is catastrophic. And right now, the media is just like chomping at the bit, hungry to, oh, oh, there's another one. There's another one. Um, And just this morning, I saw that uh, Delta had an emergency landing after a a 757 after suffering an engine problem. Uh, This also from aerotime.aero. I'll put a link in the show notes. This one came out uh, also on the 23rd. Delta Airlines Boeing 757 operating flight 2123 from Atlanta to Seattle suffered engine trouble and was forced to make an emergency landing in Salt Lake City. According to flightradar24.com data, the Delta Airlines Boeing 757 registered as November 819 Delta X-ray departed from Atlanta's International Airport towards its intended destination of Seattle International airport on february 22nd 2021 however a few hours after departure a flight deck indicator light warned the crew of possible engine trouble the crew decided to divert and made an emergency landing in salt lake city at around 11:08 p.m utc mm-hmm. speaking to the media a delta Airlines spokesperson said that the aircraft averted out of an abundance of caution <laughs> So, you know, this indicator warning was a was a indication of a possible problem with one of its engines. But, mm-hmm. you know, they landed, uh, they taxied to the gate. It was 
really a non-event. There was a problem. There was an indication. They landed. But of course, every little thing that's going to happen now for the next few weeks is going to come up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we talked about it in an earlier podcast too, and it revolved around the return of service to the for the Max, the seven thirty seven Max, um, shortly after the aircraft had been given its you know seal of approval, approved to fly. Um, Air Canada had one of their Boeing seven thirty seven Max declare an emergency and land back in Tucson when it came out of storage because they had an engine. They called it an engine problem, but really it was a hydraulic problem. But the hydraulic pump is connected mm-hmm. to the engine, so that's why they they declared it. A, they categorized it as an engine problem. But you know, hey, they they just out of abundance of precaution yeah. declared an emergency and landed it landed the airplane in Tucson, and um, you know everybody's safe and safe and sound. I mean, there's no more passengers on that airplane anyway, yeah. but um, it's yeah, yeah I remember that ferry safety. flight. They pull it out of storage, hadn't flown for a while. And that's right. You know, and, and it's it's yep. mechanical, you know, it's not like your car where it starts to run rough. You can pull into the next service station and say, Hey, can you check out my car? You know, you're in the air, so you gotta yeah, you gotta figure out a place to land. Yeah. It. Uh it's your gas cap. You gotta take it off and put it back on and the light will go away in about ten miles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that too driving down the road. Your your right. gas cap is on or my <laughs> Yeah, here in Texas, you get, get a lot. The uh, you you get cars with the tire pressure monitoring yeah. systems, and you know those are those are filled with nitrogen, so that you know you, numerous reasons lighter, but also for uh, corrosion. You know because it's not oxygen, any moisture in there won't mm-hmm. corrode. But people don't care; they'll just put normal air in the tire which is no big deal, but no, uh, normal oxygen compared to nitrogen, it expands and contracts at a more greater rate than, than nitrogen yeah. does. So here in Texas, the temperature swings up and down. Like for instance, the last time we had a snowpocalypse and every single tire pressure monitoring system in every car that, that we own was saying, Hey, your tire pressure is low. Your tire pressure. No, it's not Tom Brady. Defla- <laughs> it's not deflate the, gate. <laughs> the footballs, but yeah, the, the actual tire pressures were were low, but I, I guess it has something very similar as what Tom Brady experienced up there. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the temperature went down, and you know, yeah, so you have to go put air in your tires and fill them up. And uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize yeah. that. Oh my God, they think, oh, I got a nail in my tire, or whatever. There's a line at the Goodyear. Uh, And ladies and gentlemen, we're back from the break. Well, you know, Rob, I got to say thank you so much for the information that you've been giving us with, you know, how they do the sonic x-rays of uh, engine parts and and fan blades. And I mean, I didn't really, I knew that they did x-rays, but I really didn't understand the process. And thank you for going through that. That's great. You know, there's a lot of challenges yeah, no facing commercial pilots nowadays. It's, it's really in the mission statement of this podcast is that we're here to explore the journey of today's aviators and the challenges in the industry and in today's marketplace. Uh, there's a lot of challenges that face us now, especially with everything that's going on in the world. 
And I did mention earlier that I did fly a two-day, eh, technically a three-day trip, but it was a red eye that left Los Angeles. Uh, I think it was a 12.05 a.m. departure, and we're flying to Charlotte with one of those 10-hour layovers in Charlotte. So you land at early Ugh. in the morning, and you know they you ha when you're at a hotel or an airport that the hotel is co-located and you just have to walk across, it's really not that big of a deal because you can go from the gate to your hotel room really quick. But when you're in a place where the hotel is off property, now you have to, you know, you're already tired from the red eye, but then you have to take the time to go down to the curb, get in a hotel van. You might have to wait for the van. And then, you know, your, your time at rest is shortened by that period. So the, the, the trip was supposed to be a 12.05 departure out of Los Angeles and landing in Charlotte like at 7.30 in the morning. Well, we did all the necessary pre-flight uh, duties and all the, the checklists were run. We're ready to go. The captain had to make this new PA that we have to make now since the TSA has uh, started this new uh, violation in case you're not wearing a mask. Uh, now, not just the FAA, but the TSA is now getting involved. So we have mandatory PAs that we have to make. Well, that was all done. And we thought, well, let's do this. I was well-rested. My captain was well-rested. I'd flown with him before, so we, we knew each other. We push off the gate, and it was a relatively uneventful, quiet evening in Los Angeles. No fog, no marine layer. It was going to be a good trip. And we're... 30 seconds from taking the runway. We're taxiing the, the before takeoff checklist was complete. And we get the infamous ding. And the flight attendant says, uh, yeah, we need to return to the gate. We have a passenger that will be leaving us. Okay, do you require any, you know, any threats or anything like that that we need to know about? And they're like, you need to have the police standing by. Uh, this individual is saying that we're not living in a communist country, that you can't make me wear my mask and all this stuff. And the passengers that are seating around them are very upset. And if this goes on, there's going to be a fight. <laughs> Holy crap. So it got very busy very quickly. And I've got to say, without sounding uh, like I'm tooting my own horn, um, because the captain was was very much responsible for the tone in the cockpit, but man, did we do a good job! It got very busy. Uh, he's like, "Okay, uh, do you mind uh, letting ground know?" We're gonna, go. yeah, sure, no problem. And so he was concentrating on on slowing the aircraft to a stop. I told ground, eh, "Listen, we we've got a passenger disturbance on the aircraft. We're gonna need to return to the gate, and no need to coordinate that. So if we can get." Uh, clearance back to the gate and they're like okay uh you're requiring any assistance and i'm like uh well at this time no but we're going to coordinate with our operations we may request law enforcement so they're like all right turn left on this you know taxiway taxi back via charlie like okay so i tell the captain all right your your aircraft your radios i'm going to contact operations to get us the gate he's like okay great so now he makes the turn and uh, i called operations of course there's no ramp control that late in, in the morning. Um, and so I had to 
call ops, tell them we're coming back, passenger disturbance. We needed a supervisor, uh, the CSR or ground security coordinator, whatever they call it, uh, to meet us at the gate. Uh, and the flight attendants are requesting that we have law enforcement. And would you like me to coordinate that with the tower or do you want to handle it? And they're like, no, we'll take care of it. We'll have everybody standing by. You're going to come back to this gate. Okay, no problem. So I come back into the cockpit, tell the captain which gate we're going to. He goes, okay. I said, I'll, I'll get ground. So I call ground, tell him about the gate. And now he's making a PA saying, ladies and gentlemen, please remain seated. We're going to be going back to the gate. We'll have more information in a moment. And so we get the whole thing going. It was almost, the aircraft really never stopped. It was a seamless operation. We get back to the gate. Turned out two early 20-year-old individuals, males, uh, refused to wear the mask once they boarded the aircraft. And it was not the flight attendants that were initiating the response of, hey, you need to put your mask on. It, were the, it was the passengers around them that were insisting, hey, put on your mask, put on your mask. And, and so the, the passengers were the ones that were really policing themselves. And the flight attendants, you know, obviously got up to, to find out what's all this commotion and said, sir, you know, you really got to put the mask Well, I'm not living in a communist country. Oh, you can't make me do anything. And I'm like, well, okay, sure. Well, <laughs> I guess the PAs and the information that they're bombarded with 17 times, <laughs> at least by the time they check in to the airport, to the time they're sitting in their seat with their seatbelt on, um, all, every single one of those PAs meant nothing to them. Uh, so they were escorted. Off the plane, there was not any kind of hubbub or commotion. They were very calm, um, Good. and we were very grateful. We we upped the fuel. We got back up to release fuel, uh, just so we had, you know, every possible bit of fuel that we needed. Uh, the whole process didn't take more than about twenty five minutes. Once the fuel was on the aircraft, we, you know, of course, the captain made some PAs apologizing. And uh, the funny part is, and I, and I always get a kick out of this, is, you know, so you get back to the gate, the jet bridge is attached, they open the door, and we're running our shutdown checklist, and all of a sudden, from the back, we hear. <laughs> they're like, oh, they're so happy that we returned to the gate and delayed the flight. It's like, oh, they're happy that those guys are gone, you know? Getting off and the so airplane. Our, our purser, our yeah. number one lead flight attendant, you know, came in after we got to the gate and told us kind of what happened. And okay, no big deal, right? So we we were in the air about I think it was an hour delayed from our original departure time. Uh, of course, you're not going to make up an hour going to Charlotte, but we were only 28 minutes late. So the we had good tailwinds, good strong jet stream. Yeah. What I found amazing was that once we were at cruise, the captain and our purser, our lead flight attendant, coordinated the information because now it's required that we fill out a report. We fill out a report because we had a passenger disturbance, we had a non-compliant passenger, and we had to return to the gate. So the cool thing about these reports is while you're in cruise, you can actually access, at least at our company, at Legacy Airlines, you can access what they call a SERS report. and all you'd have to do is click the buttons. You don't have to sit there and type a huge narrative. It's all laid out. You put in, it knows your schedule. You just click on the yep. flight number and it generates all the pertinent information, the time. And then you, where did the incident happen? It happened on taxi out. And then it generates it. What kind of incident was it? Passenger disturbance. You click on that. And then it goes, oh, which passenger? And there's the whole passenger list 
of everybody on board, the seat number and their name. I was like, are you kidding me? And so he's just like, oh my cool. God, I've never had to do this. This is amazing. So here he is clicking on it and he goes, were, were any other passengers involved? Yes. Okay, what seat were they in? This, was this their name? Yes, it was. I mean, it, it is so intuitive. Wow. Amazing, amazing. And so it took him nice. about 10 minutes to fill out this report with a small narrative, whereas in the past you'd have to like, generate all this. You'd have to write a narrative out. Then when you landed, you had to go log on online and you had to type all this stuff into the computer. And if you didn't do it in a certain period of time, it would wipe it out and you'd have to start all over again. It was, it was frustrating, but man, this, these new reports, pretty cool. Yeah. Nice job. You sound like you did a good job out there too, man. That's, it gets really busy, you know, just on a normal day. And then to have to stop what you're doing, turn around and divert your attention to getting the airplane back. Uh, that's, that's, you did a good job. Uh, thank you. Yeah, that's a lot going on, especially having to deal with a passenger disturbance. You know, you never know how, where that can go yeah. these days, <laughs> you know, it can go bad and end up on CNN or whatever, but it sounded like your crew in the back handled it well. And thank God the passengers said something. Yeah. It's good to see that the passengers are, are all in too. Yeah, you know? for sure. Um, and yeah, he did, uh, and thank you for saying that he did, uh, say afterwards, he was like, you know what? I'm really glad you were here with me. And I was like, really? He was like, yeah, because if you were a new hire that, you know, came in from a different aspect, uh, of aviation and hadn't spent all that time with our regional park pipe, uh, regional partner over there at Sandpiper, I mean, you would have been all like, oh, what do we do? Uh, what am I supposed to do? What, do uh, okay. And you're just along for the ride, but you yeah. were like, actually taking care of, I didn't have to tell you to do anything. You knew exactly what to do. He goes, man, you standpiper guys are awesome. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> As Roger shakes his That's head. Awesome. Oh my God, your head's getting bigger. I was worried. Nope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good job. So have Tony. you had any, uh, any passenger incidences relating to not wearing a mask yet, Rod? No, sir. No. Um, Nothing that I know of. <laughs> the uh, if it is, it was low level and um, handled, you know, be between uh, the passenger and the gate agent, or the passenger and the flight attendants. But um, no, we've I've had pretty good, you know, pretty good flights uh, all month. And since this, I guess you know, this started what mm-hmm. this month as far as the regulation. So um, yeah. Nope, nope, not bad. I mean, we've only had a couple flights that were completely full, even a jump seater, but most of the flights are uh, less than 100 people or, you know, 110, 120 or less. Um, probably the least amount of people I had on a flight this last month was maybe 50 or 60. Huh. So that's pretty light load, but, um, you know, and pretty much everything has been... I, I guess I've been all over the place, but I'm, I'm just trying to determine if it's, you know, specific to any one area of the country or, or going to one, uh, going to a specific area, but it, it doesn't, everything's yeah. been good. Good. Well, you know, real quick, uh, I, I wanted to mention in a segment we normally call WTF. Like I, on that trip, uh, we landed <laughs> in Salt Lake city in the new terminal in Salt Lake city and we parked at the gate. And we landed it. It was the evening, t- evening time. And we had to walk from the gate that Legacy Airlines uses now in Salt Lake City to the curb in order to get the hotel van to go to the overnight. 
one mile and a quarter. No automated transportation and whatsoever. Walking. You have to walk. And to add insult to injury, we had one passenger that required an escort, wheelchair escort. Uh, yeah, Salt Lake City doesn't she offer <laughs> wheelchair escorts right now, or they didn't at that time. Um, I don't know if they have like limited hours or oh, what they're no. doing. So the poor lady and the gate agent had to sit there and try to figure out how they were going to get her a mile and a quarter to the baggage claim area <laughs> of walking. Um, oh, oh my, my goodness. That's ridiculous. And yes, the city has plans in the future to have like some kind of railway system. Uh, but yeah, if you're going through Salt Lake City and you're going to be flying out, uh, wear your running shoes or walking shoes because you're going to be you're going to be huffing it, you know, bring a bottle. I feel like it's a Delta thing. What is it with Delta's hubs? I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean, you've been to you Detroit? Walk everywhere. Yeah, Detroit. Yeah, that's... Atlanta? Yeah, Atlanta. Yeah. I mean, Atlanta's got Hartford. the tram. Yeah, they got the tram. Yeah, you... But Detroit, Atlanta, Salt Lake, because yeah. I've been... We go to Salt Lake fairly yeah. regularly. What is it with Delta's, Delta's hubs yeah, you get and the moving it. walkways between yeah. the things. Even Denver for United, even Denver. I mean, I mean, it's like you're walking forever. Really? Ever. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's And that's I don't crazy. use those moving walkways. I was going to say. I try not to because the minute you get on them, you're going to have like a group of people that just. More. Yeah. Stop it. Stop and sight see and right. watch. And like, oh, this is. <laughs> <laughs> so my WTF moment would have to be uh, uh, in Detroit also. We just happened to talk about that where the uh, terminal that, that Legacy Airlines parks at is all the way in the north north terminal it's the d terminal we usually get the end the gates all yeah, the way at cheaper. the end and then <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah they're cheaper right and then the hotel if you have a short layover is the weston uh airport marriott which is located in the terminal in the delta in the delta's terminal all the way on the south end so it would normally take if you were driving a car what two minutes three minutes to get there it takes a good half hour to almost 45 minutes for them to pick you up, go through all the airport turns and stops to get you to the airport hotel, <laughs> just on the other side of the airport. And I'm like, you know, this is a short overnight. You should be able to get to your hotel within like 10 minutes, 15 minutes yeah. of max. Here it's taking you a half hour to 40, 45 minutes. Uh, debrief it, debrief anyways. it. I always do. I always do. But then, so here, why do we choose these short overnights too, or these short hotels? Because, you know, we're, we have, we're there minimal time and, you know, pretty much you're going to go back to uh, the terminal the next morning and, and go to work. Well, this is when we had the, the second round of cancellations mm -hmm. in Dallas. So I was stuck in the, that short layover hotel for two nights, limited food, limited options. I guess now they opened up the known crew member, it's been open, but you know, normally we don't you have to use it. But anyways, you got to go through known crew member and you can go in civilly civil uniform and, but you have to go into the terminal and get food to come back to the hotel. So that's the other WTF yeah. moment, but good. I'll yeah. live first world problems, legacy airline problems. That's right. We're good. <laughs> that's right. Speaking of, you know, I'm Roger, good. you've had uh, an interesting couple of weeks of flying and you were telling me a little bit about 
an incident you had, well, not an incident, but just uh, a flight you had where you were conducting a straight in versus a circling approach. What exactly was happening there? I don't understand. Like at some point, when does landing straight in, are you better off landing straight into something than doing a circling approach? You know, I, I was flying, I was flying into Truckee and the, the approach that gets you to the lowest minimums is actually to a shorter runway. It, uh, 4,600 feet, I believe is what it is for runway two zero, except that that approach also gets you, has the lowest minimums. And, you know, when plugging the numbers in just to kind of give, give an idea and, um, where, where this probably came from is when I plug the numbers in the, the default is part 135 and one part 121 numbers where you guys need to have 1.67 times your, your landing distance in order to make a legal landing. And so I got a little yellow message that, that basically told me, hey, there's an error. And what the error was is I did not technically have 1.67. Now we under part, operate under part 91, so we do not need, um, we don't need that. And my actual landing distance was way short than 46 and 4,600. And I, I basically briefed the passengers because the weather was bad. It's like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use the longer runway. I'm going to go land straight in on the shorter runway. You're going to know we're there. I'm not going to screw around. We're just going to put the plane down. Um, you know, I, I had landed on that, that runway before, but not in this particular uh, model. I put it down. It was a positive landing. It stopped way, way before the end of the runway we got off, but the guy behind me, and this happened on two days, actually. Um, one day and then two days later it happened again where they shot the same approach and they started a circle i presume maybe because of landing calculations i'm not sure and they end up going missed and it just begs the question to me why like at what point does doing a circling approach actually safer than landing straight in you know i don't know how you know what your guys have my on specifically my Embraer 145 type rating. I have a limitation for circling and VMC only because that was not, we didn't do that as part of the check, right? You know, obviously somebody somewhere knows that circling, you know, is, is a little bit of a, a more risky maneuver. And yet we've still got these guys that are going out there unable to land circling in a mountain airport doing circling approaches in bad weather when there's a perfectly good runway right in front of them. And it's, you know, it's just kind of one of those things that made me wonder. I'd never really thought about it before, but literally two on two different days, two different occasions, it was the same thing. I, I landed and the guy behind me are circling and they're, they're going missed. They're trying to circle in a mountainous airport, doing a missed approach in a mountainous airport. And I landed yeah. straight in. And did it, were they also GA uh, part 91 guys? Yeah, it's all GA because there is no, um, I, there was one, I, there was one that went missed before me. That was a fractional mm -hmm. operator. Quite frankly, I don't know what his deal was. He was just chicken. I don't, <laughs> I honestly don't know. I won't use any names. Um, and then on the second day, I know that it was a challenger that was coming in behind, behind me. Um, and I don't remember what the one on the first day was just like, 
just go straight in. Yeah. Yeah, I, I too have have been in a situation uh, actually at Sandpiper at the at the regional airline where we're going into an outstation. It's a small airport with a control tower. Uh, the winds were for the preferred runway not favorable. It turned out to be a tailwind, and it was pretty gusty, strong winds, snow on the ground, but you know dry runway, and they asked us, you know, what approach do you want? And we said, well, let's get the approach to whatever runway it was, circle the land of this runway, which was the longer runway, the preferred runway anyway. Uh, but uh, for whatever reason, their instrument approach uh, procedure was out of service. So our only option was to circle the land. And so the captain briefed it, the captain was flying it, uh, strong winds, uh, more than 35 knots, uh, only a few hundred feet off the ground. And so he briefed it. He goes, yeah, we've got a strong wind. So on the circled approach, you know, you're going to have the best of you from your side of the cockpit. Can you please just, you know, make sure you can see it and, and we're going to stay clear clouds. If it, any question, this is what we're going to do if we go missed. And we're like, yeah, great. Sure. Sure enough, uh, when he broke out, visual, all right, going visual, circling. And Tyra's like, okay. And then he's not really putting in enough wind correction. I'm like, you're, you're drifting left. You need to go further right, further right. You need to go further right. Uh, you need to oh, I think you need to go mist. And he looks up and he's like, got a control tower in front of him. I'm like, no, I've been blown way off. So of course he went mist. And the second go around that we, we came out and tried, he landed just fine with the circling approach. But circling approaches can be very tricky. And it doesn't matter if you're a, a Skyhawk pilot or you're an Embraer pilot or you're a Boeing pilot. I mean, circling approaches can be very tricky because it's a visual maneuver and we don't do them every day. So when you brought that up, I, I really thought it'd be a great topic to discuss here on the show. Rob, have you had any uh, similar situations with circling approaches? Um, I've never, probably the last time I did one was uh, with Sandpiper landing in Dallas when we did the, uh, when the winds get strong out of the Northwest, they tend to like to land on the three ones, which are, you know, mm -hmm. diagonals. And uh, they used to have us do a, a localizer approach. I think it's the three, five center circle, the land three, one left when the winds are really strong out of the Northwest. And that was probably the, uh, the, the last time I've had to do something like that. I mean, they, they, you know, I guess sidestepping is, is that considered a circle to land? Not no. really, but you know, it's, it's, it's not the same thing, but, um, but yeah, that was the last time. And, and it, the only reason why we were doing it was, wasn't for visibility. It was just because of the winds and the winds are just so strong that, uh, you know, it, it exceeded the crosswind limitations on the, uh, on the Northwest parallel runways that we had to use the, uh, the diagonals. So and then when we took off that day, I mean, that it was really fun to be a plane spotter <laughs> watching those airplanes land. Um, as you know, we're holding short of the runway, we're getting ready to take off, but you're watching the airplanes land on that runway. Man, the wind shear and the, the you know, you watch these seven five triple sevens coming in and they're just all over the place trying to get the airplane down on the ground. And, you know, those those guys had a handful of airplane coming in the land that yeah. day. Yeah, well, I did a little uh, research yep, on was the it. circle of the land. Uh, I found a pretty interesting guide to, you know, 
circling approaches. It's on thinkaviation.net. It came out and was published in 2017 by Sarah Fritz. Uh, it's called A Practical Guide to Circling Approaches. And just briefly, it says here uh, that uh, pilots fly circling approaches when it's not possible to do a straight-in approach to a runway after an instrument approach. Circling approaches are necessary for a variety of reasons. The most common are strong tailwinds, obstacles, high descent angles, and or the final approach segment exceeds 30 degrees from the approach runway. So that's the book answer. And you're here for the practical answer. And she, she goes on to say, <laughs> if you're on an ILS approach to runway two, but the winds are out of the south at 15 knots, only a fool would land with a 15 knot tailwind. So instead of landing on runway two, you enter an extended left downwind to land on runway 18. That is a circling approach. You are simply aligning the aircraft with the best runway after you break out of the clouds on a normal instrument approach. And there's a couple diagrams here in the article that can be very helpful. There are hundreds of reasons and ways you can do a circling approach. Each scenario is different, but the fundamentals are all the same. You need to get aligned with the best runway after you exit the, cl the clouds. Then um, she goes on to explain. The different minimum, the circling minimum, that's also something you need to be well aware of. They use Boise Air Terminal uh, or Goin' Field uh, BOI as uh, an example. Is that the distance from the field, like the 1 1.3, 1 1.5, 1 1.7? Yeah, they're talking about that. and 2.3 and 4.5. And visibility minimums that. are higher than the LNAV minimums. Oh. Uh, because, again, you have to maintain a particular... Uh, visibility that is not sometimes not standard VFR, a little bit above it actually. Uh, circling circling approaches only. No wait, circling only approaches do not allow a straight in approach. So you will only see circling minimum. So if you're looking at a chart and it's a circling approach, you're just going to see the circling minimum. Uh, sometimes though there aren't any other options. So take a look at the instrument procedures handbook. And it explains the reasons for building a circle to land approach um, or using one. So you were talking about uh, distances. Uh, yeah, yeah, the final approach course alignment with the runway. If it exceeds 30 degrees, it's a circle approach, not a sidestep or whatnot. That's right. The descent okay. angle, uh, if it's greater than 400 feet per nautical mile, from the final approach fix to the threshold crossing height, when the maximum gradient is exceeded, a circle-only approach procedure may be designed to meet the gradient uh, criteria. So in a mountainous area, like what Roger was going into, sometimes people elect to use a circle approach simply because if they were, they were doing a straight-in, uh, they wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so there's plenty, like, like mentioned here in the article, plenty of reasons why to do a circling approach and some general rules and safety as well. So I encourage you to take a look at the link in the show notes. Um, some of them are prohibited at night, so be very careful. Always read the notes section of your instrument approach plate. Uh, never do a circling approach to an airport that is unfamiliar to you at night, even if it's authorized. That's a given. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's safe. Uh, and if you do single pilot, always try to do left-hand traffic patterns unless otherwise indicated so that you can always keep the airport in sight. In this segment, I uh, got some feedback 
this week. I was very excited to. This feedback is from Z-Man. He emailed us and he writes, Hey, gents, great show. I was referred to your show by some of our legacy cohorts. Big fans and suggested a listen. Thank you for promoting a positive viewpoint and perspective during these turbulent times. Well done. He also goes on to write that he is a 787 first officer in Chicago for Legacy Airlines. He's a former Sandpiper 145 driver, not a flow through, uh, former chief pilot at a scenic air cargo company and retired from the U.S. Army Air Submission Manipulator where he was uh, an instructor and standards pilot. I also produce, he says, and administer the world's largest 787 training study resource for legacy pilots. So if you're a 787 pilot or you're you're thinking about going to the 787 uh, for legacy airlines, he puts on a website that is a great resource for studying that equipment. Uh, Anyone interested can send us an email directly I'll be more than happy to send you the website. Uh, it's password protected because it's specifically for legacy pilots on the 787. So, uh, But I'll be more than happy to, to pass that along. And uh, he says, cheers, keep up the good work. So Z-Man, thank you so much for that feedback. We'd, we'd uh, love to hear more from our listeners. Uh, feel free to send us an email or a message on the socials. Uh, we, we love it. Keep them coming. Thanks, Z-Man. That's cool. Well, all of us here at Squawk Ident hope that you're enjoying our podcast. If you find value in our podcast and when you like to help us by contributing to the podcast and help us grow, we encourage you to visit our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. From there, on the homepage, you can find methods to contribute to the show, become a producer with either a one-time or recurrent contribution you can also leave us audio feedback questions send us emails give us ideas for show topics that you'd like us to cover all there from the website social media users facebook instagram and youtube you can find us under the squawk ident podcast we encourage you to support our show on the youtube channel with a like subscribe and a share and don't forget to select the little bell to be notified of any new videos in closing i would like to say thank you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. Bye, everyone. See ya. Take care.